This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Sam VR, Benton, Caleb F., Lydia, and Sam M. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question. And as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Well, let's get started with a couple of serious questions. This week, we have questions from Sam VR and from Benton. First, here's Sam's question. He asks, do you know all the people on the genealogy? Sam is referring to the genealogy of Jesus that we read in Matthew chapter 1. And of course, that was the first section of Matthew that we discussed in our new sermon series on Matthew. And admittedly, when you read that genealogy, there are a lot of names that come from the Old Testament. Some of them are a lot more familiar than others. To answer your question, Sam... No, I don't know all the people on the genealogy. The Bible tells us a lot more about some of them than it does about others. So when we read the genealogy, we recognize names like David and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These are all major characters early in the Old Testament. With the exception of David, all of those come in the book of Genesis. But as we continue through the genealogy, we get some names that are a little less familiar, like Hezron and Ram. And then Ram is the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab is the father of Nashon. And you're like, who are these people? But if you keep going, you get to Boaz. And Boaz is very familiar from the book of Ruth. We get Boaz, then Obed, and then Jesse, who's the father of David. So these are more familiar characters. Uh, From David, we go to Solomon, and from Solomon to Rehoboam. And essentially, we get a list of kings of the Old Testament kingdom of first Israel and then the divided kingdom of Judah. And this takes us all the way through the kingdom of Judah until it falls to the Babylonians. So we get Jeconiah, who is the, the final king in that line, And then he's the father of Shealtiel, and then Shealtiel is the father of Zerubbabel, and he is familiar. He is the governor during the days of Zechariah that we were just looking at in our last sermon series. But if we keep going after that, we run into a series of names where the, the names are familiar, but not necessarily because of these individuals, sometimes, uh, you know, different people will have the same name. And so we have Eliakim and we have Zadok and Eliezer, but they're not the famous holders of those names from earlier in the Old Testament. But then eventually we get to Joseph, who's the husband of Mary, and then Jesus. And things get obviously very familiar again. So, Don't feel bad if when we work through a genealogy like this, you don't recognize all of the names. Some of them will become more familiar to you the more you study the Bible. Others, though, remain a little bit mysterious because we don't always know the life stories of the people who are mentioned. 
Our next question comes from Benton, and he asks, I want to participate in church more. Who should I talk to? Well, Benton, you are talking to the right person, me. If you're interested in participating in church more, there are a couple of answers I would give you. It depends on what you mean by participating. So we could take this one of two ways. Sometimes when people think about participating in church, they're thinking about volunteering or serving in various ways. And people who are interested in serving more at church, there's an easy place to start, which is with one of our volunteer cards on the back table in the sanctuary. Those include a list of all the various teams that you can volunteer for. And when you turn those in, you're contacted by someone who talks to you about how you might serve in those areas. Uh, There are opportunities to serve in Teach Me to Worship. There are opportunities to serve in the nursery and in other ways as well. And so that would be one way to participate in church more Sometimes, though, when people talk about participating in church more, what they mean is is getting more out of it, uh, immersing themselves more in the experience. I always recommend becoming a part of the community, like making friends, building relationships with other people at church so that you're eager to see them, to talk to them, and to get to know them more. That's a great way to participate in the life of the church more. There are also some tips I can give you for how to get more out of the experience of worship. So here's a few ideas. When you're preparing yourself to come to a worship service, it's always a good idea to see what this sermon is going to be about in advance and to read that text before you arrive at church, to familiarize yourself with the sermon text so that when you're hearing it, In the worship service, it's not your first time hearing it. You already have some familiarity. That helps you listen more attentively and follow what you're hearing more easily. Another thing I would suggest is not only reading the text in advance, but also spending a little time in prayer before the service. You can do this at home as you're reading the text that we're going to be preaching on. You can spend a little time in prayer there. You can also do it right before the service. You can enter into the sanctuary, find your seat, and then spend a little bit of time just praying that God would open your heart and open your mind to the experience of worship. You can also take notes during the service, not only during the sermon, but throughout the service. I think it's a great idea as we're worshiping, if you notice things in our scripture readings, in our songs, in our liturgy that are interesting to you, that you wonder about, uh, underline those things. Make notes in your order of worship so that you can reflect on those things later. And then finally, ask questions. A great way to participate in the life of the church more is to ask questions, whether it's asking questions for the big question or just asking questions of your parents or your siblings or just the people around you. Sparking these conversations helps all of us dig a little deeper into worship. And now it's time for the big question. This week, our big question comes from Caleb F. Caleb asks, how did God inspire the prophets to write the Bible? 
When we look at the Bible, we see a collection of 66 distinct books that were written over the course of thousands of years by many different human authors. And yet, all of these books are scripture. All of them are the Word of God. Trying to get your head around that can be a little bit mysterious. And so it's natural to ask a question like Caleb's, how did, how did this work? How exactly did God do this work of inspiration through all of these different authors, especially in the case of Caleb's question through the prophets? So let's break that down a little bit. There's a, a, a main point that I want to make, and then we'll look at a few sub points as well. For the main point, I want to turn to 2 Peter, uh, the second epistle that the Apostle Peter wrote. In the very first chapter, chapter 1, verse 21, Peter says something really important about the Word of God, particularly about prophecy. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Of course, Peter understands that there were many different prophets and that God worked with them in many different ways, but he sums up all of that work and describes it as men being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And because of that process of being carried along, the men spoke, but they spoke not their own words, not words produced by their own will, but rather they spoke from God. They spoke the word of God. So the big answer to this big question, the, the easy answer, I suppose you could say, is the Holy Spirit. How did God inspire the prophets to write the Bible? He did it through the power of the Holy Spirit. So every author of Scripture over the course of those thousands of years was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it was that process of inspiration that made what they said and what they wrote the actual Word of God. Now, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in this way, when Paul talks about Scripture in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he can say this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you hear these words? All Scripture is breathed out by God. That is the best definition that we have of inspiration. What the Holy Spirit was doing was working in these human authors so that the words which came out of them were breathed out by God. And because of that, they have the authority of the Word of God. Everything that we find in Scripture, every sentence, every word that we find in the Bible was breathed out by God through these human authors. Now, that's the big picture, but I want to focus on the prophets in particular, because in the ministry of the prophets, especially in the Old Testament, we see that the way that the Holy Spirit spoke 
actually differs quite a bit. It could look very different in the life of one prophet compared to the life of another prophet. If you look in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews describes this really well, I think, that the start of that book, in the first two verses, you read this, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So if you listen right at the beginning there, the author of Hebrews is talking about the old way that God revealed himself and comparing that to the new way. Now, the new way is Jesus. Like when Jesus comes, God is revealing himself in a much clearer way than he did before because Jesus is God in the flesh. So now Jesus speaks to us, and this is God speaking to us in a way that is incredible. But God was speaking to us before the birth of Christ. He was doing it, according to the author of Hebrews, at many times, so over the course of many years. And here's the kicker, in many ways. He is summing up a great variety in that little phrase. If you look at the Old Testament, here's what you see. Sometimes the Holy Spirit would speak to prophets through dreams, So the prophet might have a a dream in which something was revealed to him, and then later he would write it down or declare it to the people. Sometimes the prophets were given visions. We saw this in the book of Zechariah, where these night visions came to Zechariah, and they have like a dreamlike quality to them, but they're a little bit distinct from just having a dream, right? There are a series of visions. Sometimes we see uh, God speaking. For example, in the life of Moses, God communicates with Moses in a way that he really doesn't with any of the prophets who come after Moses. God himself describes it as a face-to-face relationship. You know, he speaks and, and Moses hears with a directness that no one else does until Jesus. Sometimes we see angelic messengers being sent, either in the physical world or we see them appearing in these visions or in these dreams. And so there's many different ways that the Holy Spirit communicates to the prophets and through the prophets. But it's not the method that makes the word authoritative. It is the Spirit that makes the word authoritative. So when we ask the question, how did God inspire the prophets to write the Bible? The answer is about as varied as the prophets themselves were. And as you read different books, you will see very different ways that God communicates. But always remember that it is the same God communicating. It is the same spirit working to inspire that word. So no matter how different the means are, the end result is the Word of God preserved for us in the Bible. Before we wrap things up, we have time for a couple of fun questions. This time we have questions from Lydia and from Sam M. We'll start with Lydia, who asks, what is your favorite fruit? Well, Lydia, this question 
is easy. I know usually whenever people ask about my favorite this or my favorite that, I always complain about how hard it is to name a favorite. But in this case, it's going to be pretty easy. As I look outside my window right now, I can see a lime tree on my porch. And so lime is my favorite fruit. I think lime tastes good. I like the way it looks. That little shade of lime green is one of my favorite colors, definitely my favorite fruit color. And if I were to choose any other fruit with the lime tree right outside the window, it would probably be offended anyway. And so I'm going to go ahead and say that my favorite fruit is lime. If you're curious what kind of lime, I have a key lime tree. And right now, it seems to have at least a dozen, maybe more, little limes on its branches ready to be picked. And now, Sam M. asks, can we get a clock in here? Oh boy. I can only imagine what Sam was feeling when he wrote this question. Sitting in the sanctuary, doing a church service, wondering when will it be over? just wishing that he could have a clock to look to. Well, Sam, the answer is no, no. We're not going to put a clock in the sanctuary because when we are in worship, we're really not focused on what time it is or how much time has passed. We're focused on worshiping God and being present with him in that moment. And I kind of feel like having a clock on the wall would detract from that. However, having said that, let me just mention, it's always possible to wear a clock on your wrist. We call them watches. And if you do that, you will be able to tell what time it is at all times. And even if you don't have a watch on, usually the people sitting around you might have one and that'll allow you to tell what time it is as well. You're probably worried that because we don't have a clock in the sanctuary, it might mean that if I'm preaching, I might go way long. But fortunately, I have a watch on my wrist, and usually I'll also have a timer with me in the pulpit as well so that I know how long I've been going because I understand that there's only so long that you can pay attention, and I try to be conscious of that. But you know what? I think sometimes it's okay if church runs a little bit long, because it's good for us to spend time together as the people of God. So no, we're not going to be posting a clock inside the sanctuary, uh, but you're welcome to bring a clock or watch of your own if you're curious. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember... If we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.